0: Church, we're going to be looking at John chapter four today, I'm attempting to cover. 26 verses, and this is a really interesting account of a conversation that Jesus has with a woman from Samaria. Um, He has it at a well, and it's just a really interesting interaction that he has with her. He not only teaches, he not only teaches her, but he also teaches the disciples and he teaches us through this interaction that she um, has with him. And I'm going to read out what will seem like a really Strange couple of verses um, to begin with because I'm not going to read the whole thing to start just for the sake of time, but I'm going to read a couple of verses that will seem really strange to start with. But as we go on, you'll understand why I'm reading these verses. It's verse 16, uh, 17, and 18 from John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Allow us to pray, and then we'll begin to dive into God's word together. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for church. We thank you that it is all your design. God, we pray that as we would learn from your word today, God, would you begin to um, god teach us would you shape our hearts lord would you make us more like christ would you draw us closer to you god would we be changed forever by the encounter that we have with you today through your word it's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray amen amen church it's great um to see so many people at our service today um we had a first service as well both services have been packed and we really appreciate you coming to church on a Sunday morning slash Sunday afternoon because we know that there's other places that you could be you could so much easier just be at home in your bed some of the teenagers and young adults will relate to that but it'd be so much easier just to stay in bed does anybody actually just love their sleep like I'm a big fan of sleep I'm a big advocate of of sleep and I actually I used to have an issue with snoring. I used to snore really loudly. I had an issue with my nose that needed um, corrected, and so I used to snore properly loud, and then Rebecca made sure before we got married that I got that sorted because obviously that was part of that was part of the agreement. she so just sort of made sure that was signed on the dotted line and made sure I got that sorted. So but that's fixed now. But when I get married I inherited a dog. Rebecca brought her dog with her um, to our house. In church, I have never seen a dog get so excited about sleep in my life. I've never seen a dog that loves sleep as much as this dog. Like, do you know my other dogs, like when you say, like, oh, do you want to go for a walk? Like, they're all excited, they're running to the door and stuff. Well, he sort of like you you take him out for a walk and he's sort of like dragging you back toward the house like he doesn't actually want to be there like the walk's more for you than it is for him and then you get him to the house and then like you take off his lead and stuff and that's when he starts bouncing and all because he knows he's going to go to bed so he's actually excited about going to sleep you know why people say dogs are like their owners i that dog is just rebecca like that dog just loves loves its sleep i think i think um, an appreciation of sleep runs in my family and I'll tell you a quick story me my dad and my sister were in Leeds once um, we we're over seeing a match I'm a big Leeds United fan we we're over seeing a match we we're staying in a hotel so we stay in the hotel that's all fine next morning go down to the reception the receptionist says we apologize for the fire alarm last night to which my dad replies what fire alarm the three of us had all, each one of us, all slept through a fire alarm while the entire hotel was evacuated and was standing outside in the car park. It's as well there wasn't actually a fire because we love our sleep so much there was just no waking us. That was us, the three of us. And actually, do you know what? My dad's friends were there as well and none of them thought the question, here, where's Reese? Do you know what I mean? Like, I was was like the next morning, like, what is going on? But I, I think it runs in my house We love our sleep. And you know what, sir? the reason that I talk about that, the reason I present that is because I think there's so many people out there that are just so content with the sleep that they are in, the season that they are in. People are so content with the current sleep that they are in that they don't actually realize what they are missing out on. People are so comfortable with the life that they are living that they don't understand that there's something else to be offered. You see, there's so many people out there who are just spiritually asleep and they cannot be woken up. Well, they can't be because they can't be spoken to unless we offer them something that catches them off guard. We offer them something that's a bit outside what other people have said to them. We offer people something that is different to what they have been told. We say something that means that people begin to consider what we say. And I've read a few verses there to just reiterate that Jesus was exceptionally good at this. He was so good at just saying the right thing to engage conversation. And I'm sure if if you know the Bible, you can think of other examples in scripture when he does this. But he begins a conversation here. And when he wants to teach his disciples, when he wants to teach us something about worship, he uses a woman who nobody would ever expect to be used. Because this woman, as, as it says there, and you'll understand the context of the time, To have had five husbands and be with another man and it not be her husband, this was unbelievable. Like people at the time just would not have considered that something something acceptable, something normal. And yet Jesus chooses this woman to teach us about worship. He says to her, go call your husband. Talk about catching somebody off guard. I don't have a husband. He says, aye, you're right, but you did have five. And the one you're with now isn't your husband. And she was shocked. Church, we're shocked when we read that. it's, it's, It's a heck of a few verses to begin a service with, but Jesus simply just sits there on the edge of this well looking at a woman who he really should not be seen with. And he's ready to teach us about worship through her. And so I'll explain a bit more about that as we go on. Because the first thing that we learn is that worship church has to do with real life. Worship is to do with every day Worship isn't just this interlude that we have in a wake of reality. It's not just this, this uh, mythical escape from real life. Worship has to do with a woman who is in adultery and a perfect man who is tired and thirsty and everything in between. Worship is to do with the every day. It's every interaction. And Jesus is described here as being wearied from his journey. And we'll read that in a few minutes. It, It tells us that Jesus is wearied from his journey. He's hot and he's sweaty and he's thirsty. The circumstances in which he meets this woman just aren't ideal. And yet he decides even now, just now, I'm going to seek somebody to worship God. So in in that moment, when he's probably already done his day's work, he's already been out, he's already been speaking on behalf of God, he's been worshipping God, and it tells us that he's tired. And yet he decides, I'm going to seek someone to worship God. I'm going to present my father to somebody now because church, it's probably even more important to do this when you're in that moment. See, when you're in that moment, that season of tiredness, of weariness, it's then, it's then that it's even more important that you continue to live out the call that God has given you and reach people for his kingdom. And see, Jesus does this, and not just with anybody, with a Samaritan adulteress. And, I will sh- and, and he says, I will show my disciples the worship that my father seeks, and how he seeks it in the midst of the everyday from the least worthy of people in the most insignificant of moments. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. At that time, this was important and she was caught in adultery and Jesus chooses this moment to show his disciples something about how to make true worshippers and how to make true worshippers out of the harvest of people that are just like her because there, there are others like her there are people out there who are like her and Christ presents this and he, he models this, he displays it and shows them them how to make true worshipers out of people like this. And the reason that this interaction is so interesting is because as I said, Jesus probably shouldn't have even been seen with a woman like this. But it's maybe important that we understand a little bit about the history of the Jews and the Samaritans these two two tribes of people if you will and we'll go back to the beginning of John chapter 4 and it begins to describe Jesus' journey here and it says now when Jesus learned that he sorry that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples he left Judea and departed again for Galilee See, before we meet the woman, before we meet this woman who comes to the well, maybe it's important that we understand who the Samaritans were. They were the remnant, uh, the, the leftovers, with you, if you will, of the northern Jewish kingdom who had intermarried with foreigners um, after the chiefs and nobles had been carried into exile. They had once actually built a separate worship place on their own, Mount Gerizim, and they rejected all of the Old Testament except their version of the first five books of Moses. The, the animosity, the feud between Jews and these people, the animosity towards Jews from them was hundreds of years old. Jesus walks right into the middle of this. Right into the middle of this hostility. And he sits down by a well. And he simply says in verse 7. Give me a drink. The woman at the well cannot believe this. And she says in verse 9. She says in verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Instead of answering her directly, what Jesus does is he shifts the focus of her amazement because she's clearly baffled. I mean, he's only said to her, give me a drink, but that just doesn't happen. It's not a thing. And, and she's, she's amazed. But Jesus shifts the focus of her amazement up a level. And in verse 10, in verse 10 there, he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living Water. And he would have given you living water. See, Jesus says that the really amazing thing is she's not asking him for water. He calls it living water. And he calls it the gift of God. That's what he says that it is. And the woman doesn't immediately rise to the level that Jesus is presenting her. Because her background doesn't make her a prime candidate for what he's presenting. The background that this lady would have come from, it doesn't make her necessarily a deep thinker. She wouldn't have been somebody who was good for spiritual insight. She was, as the Bible describes, a slave to flesh. Her spirit was dead. But she says this in verses 11 and 12 she says this sir you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep where do you get that living water are you greater than our father jacob he gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock she's not on jesus's wavelength just yet She's not there just yet. So Jesus again, he shifts the focus, he raises the level, he raises the bar, And he says to her in verses 13 and 14, he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus presents to her the amazing thing the amazing thing is not just that, that I can give you water without a bucket. That's not all we're talking about here. I'm not a magician. But, but the water that I give takes away thirst forever. And even better than that, it will turn you into a spring that brings eternal life Not only to you, but to others as well. This is what I offer you. This is what Jesus offers us. Living, thirst quenching water forever. That never runs dry. But what does this actually mean? What does Jesus mean when he says this? Maybe we aren't all that sure immediately either. Well, if we look to some other parts of the Bible, it begins to explain it. In Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 14, it says, The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. So maybe Jesus meant that the wisdom he gives satisfies the soul and turns a person into a fountain of life. Maybe maybe the water that he's talking about is his teaching. It's what he's saying. Maybe that's what he's referring to. But there's a parallel that's even closer that's offered in the book of John in chapter 7 and verses 37 to 39 when it says, Jesus stood up and proclaimed, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now church, grasp this. Now this he said about the spirit. This he said about the spirit which those who believed in him were to receive. Now those verses are a pretty good indicator as to what he was getting at. Just like in John 14 and 4, this passage speaks of drinking in and flowing out. But here John makes plain that Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about. It's the presence of God's spirit in your life that takes away your frustrated thirst forever. And it moves you from a person who sucks up other people's lives to a person who overflows with life for other people. This is the transformation that we make. And it still baffles me that he's offering it to her. And I'm sure the disciples couldn't believe it either her of all people. Jesus, do you know who she is? Do you know what she's done? And this is what he offers to her. Do you know what, church? Probably both of these answers have some truth. That Jesus' teaching satisfies your thirst and makes you a fountain of life. But also, the Holy Spirit satisfies your thirst and makes you a fountain of life. Because Jesus kept the word and the spirit together. He didn't necessarily separate the two. For example, it says in John again, 14, 26, The spirit whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. The work of the spirit of Christ is to make the word of Christ clear. It's to make it satisfying, satisfying to the soul. Deep within us. When we come to Christ to drink, what we take in, what we drink is truth, but it's not dead, powerless facts that are presented everywhere and anywhere. It's truth that is presented through the Word of God. It is the well in which we are to drink from. The Spirit and the Word unite together to quench our thirst and make us a fountain of life. The word of promise and the power of the spirit are the living water offered to this Samaritan adulteress. And I hope this encourages you church as much as it does me. When I think about what's being presented to this woman because sometimes I know that I feel, and I'm sure you do as well, sometimes I just feel a little bit dead. I feel so lost in my sin that I don't see how I can be of use to God's kingdom anymore, how I can be of use to God's church anymore. And those who are closest to me will know that I'm being sincere. But up to now... God has always come to me at these times and he's shown me something like this. And can I encourage you, if you're in that season, again, it is so important, probably more important, when you're in that season, when you're feeling like that, remain in his word, drink from his well. Because God points me to verses like this, to stories like this. The hope that a worldly sinful-minded, unspiritual, outcast from Samaria can become not just saved, which, by the way, would have been amazing enough. But Jesus doesn't just present to her salvation. He also presents to her that she could be a fountain of life, that she can be used to give other other people life. If God can use her in her context at her time when she was an outcast from not, only, from not only one group but the other from everybody of course he can use you. Just remain in his word. Take heart. If we turn from our sin keep drinking at the well of Jesus' word then we can be of use to God's kingdom. We, we can be of use to his church if we just drink deep at the right well. And I think that's what Jesus wanted the woman to see. But people have hardened, hardened themselves so deeply that they can't taste what Jesus means. They can't taste what he's offering because she obviously comes back to him and she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And, church, this is a lesson in itself, just this verse. Don't give up on people. Because, honestly, I read that. If you just went to verse 15, you'd be like, Do you know what? You, you can stop there because she's hopeless. She hasn't a clue. She doesn't know what you're talking about. She's lost in the world that she's in. But Jesus, that's maybe one of my favorite phrases, but Jesus wants to make her a worshiper, not only a worshiper, a true worshiper of God, a worshiper of God in spirit and in truth. So what does he do? It seems harsh, but you'll understand as we go on why he does it. He touches the most sensitive spot in her life, the part that's possibly the most vulnerable. When he says there in verse 16, go call your husband. That's a quick way to the heart. That seems harsh. Why does Jesus strip open this woman's inner life like that? Well, in John chapter 3, verse 20, it says, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Concealed sin, sin that is hidden, it keeps us from seeing the light of Christ. Sin is like spiritual leprosy. It deadens your senses, so you rip your soul to shreds and you don't even feel it. But Christ has, has set his sights on this woman's salvation. So he puts everything out there. It's like I don't, I, I've only got one conversation with her. So I'm going to put it all on the line. Give everything I've got here. And he says in verse 18, you have had five husbands. And the one, the one you now have is not your husband. Jesus puts everything out here, but it's because he's set on this woman's salvation. Now, watch this reaction from her. It's a universal reaction to to avoid conviction, to avoid feeling bad. She admits in verse 19, I perceive that you are a prophet. So he gets that far. So she knows that he's special, she knows that he has something, but instead of dealing with the guilt, she tries to suck Jesus into another conversation. And it's fascinating in verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. That just seems totally irrational to me, that's come out of nowhere. That's not what was being talked about. That's not what was being presented. And she just goes, as long as we're speaking about my past, what do you think about the issue of where people should worship? And she just immediately dodges it and goes in another direction. It's just so common. People become so irrational when they're challenged. And it's interesting that Jesus is actually gracious with her here because he's already got to the heart of the issue. So he never goes back to it. He used it as a way to provoke conversation. But now he has his foot in the door. And he's willing to take the issue that she's raised and use it to see her salvation. She raised the issue of where people ought to worship. Jesus responds by saying, that's just not important compared to how you worship and whom you worship. How and whom are vastly more important than were. That is the truth. So in verse 21, turns her attention from where to how. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, it's not the location that makes an act of worship authentic. Worship isn't just an external act that you can tick off, that you can accomplish by going somewhere, by walking through a set of doors. That's not what worship is because in Matthew 15, 18, Jesus says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Worship is first and foremost an experience of the heart. At the root of it, at the beginning of it, worship is an experience of the heart. Prayer without heart is vain. Worship without heart is vain. So Jesus says to the woman, don't get hung up on irrelevant controversies. These don't get hung up on irrelevant things. How you worship is far more important than were. And in verse 22, he introduces the question of whom it is that you worship. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Church, we can be gentle and we can be as sensitive and as respectful of another person's beliefs as we want. But unfortunately, often the uncomfortable time comes, the uncomfortable conversation comes when you have to say biblical worship is true worship. And I'm sorry, but that's not what you're doing. I know you think that what you're doing is good, but it's not in there. It's not true worship. And the location, again, it doesn't necessarily matter. It's how and it's whom. That will often be thrown back in our faces. We, we seem arrogant, but we, we're not trying to be that. If there's truth and you have bowed before it, then we need to persuade other people to bow with us. It's not arrogance, it's love. What you present, how you present this, it's love. You want people to worship with you out of love. The Samaritans rejected the Old Testament except for their version of the books of Moses. Their knowledge of God was deficient and so their worship of God was deficient. And to tell them this, to tell them the truth was as loving as telling a person who has lung cancer to stop smoking. They cared. Jesus cared. He tried the other avenues and they haven't worked. So he presents her with this. This is worship. This is who. This is how. And so in verses 21 and 22, Jesus directs the woman's attention away from this external question of where to the internal question of "high." and the question of whom worship must be real from within and it must be based on a true perception of God and in verse 23 this is summed up with a key phrase and it says but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth These two words correspond to how and to whom of worship. Worshiping in spirit is the opposite of worshiping in external ways. It's the opposite of traditionalism. And worshiping in truth is the opposite of worship based on an inadequate view of God. Together, the words spirit and truth mean that real worship... Comes from the Spirit and is based on a true view of God. Worship must have heart and worship must have head. The Bible presents both. Worship has, has to engage our emotions and it has to engage our thoughts. Truth without emotion produces a f- church full of unspiritual fighters. Emotion without truth produces flaky people who reject deep thought. True worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound truth. There's a couple of verses that are right at the end that I want to finish with. Because I really think that it speaks to us. It says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, "I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things." Jesus said to her, "I who speak to you am He. I think there's so many people waiting for something waiting for someone. But they don't know what it is that they're necessarily waiting for until it's presented to them. They don't know what it is that'll be that 180 moment. They don't know what it is that they're being presented with. But when they're presented with it, then they will know. And Christ will stand in front of them and say, I who speak to you am he. I'm the beginning of all things and I am the end of all things. I'm your reason. I'm your why. I'm the point of being here. This is is what Christ offers and this is what we have to offer other people. You see, Christ has and has graciously given us the way in which we should worship him. He's given us all the tools that we need. I don't know, maybe, maybe you're at a moment where it's like everything's got to a certain point, but now I just feel stuck. Or now I just feel like I'm, I'm in a limbo, that I can't move anywhere. I can't move forward. Church, Jesus says to you, I who speak to you am he. You want to move forward. You want to carry on. You want to go. You want things to begin to make sense, to begin to fall into place. I am what you have been looking for. This is what Christ presents to us. Church, let us pray as we come to worship. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have had today to gather around your word, to gather as your church. And to worship you, God, to worship you with truth, to worship you with love, God, to worship you with what it is that we have. God, we thank you for your grace. Thank you that it has led us here, that it allows us to experience all of this. God, we we are here and we say thank you for having us here. It's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.